Episode 6. Best laid plans can end up in divorce settlements, redirecting family wealth away from your control. With the introduction of no blame divorce, this could be a growing concern. We speak to an established divorce lawyer, Reshma, to get a better understanding of how she handles divorce and looks at some aspects that are not always considered. We're delighted to welcome Reshma Sanisi, who is a leading divorce lawyer at Kirapane, on our podcast today. Hello, Reshma. Hello, Peter. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. All right. So, as you know, what we're looking at in this series of podcasts is the over 82 million average daily wealth transfer intergenerational between families over the next 10 years. But more to the point, what would get in the way of that? So it's basically a case of, look, this is what you could have won. Now, we know, um, and in this series of podcasts, we'll be looking at areas such as divorce. Now, I know that's an area you specialize in. So if I may, could we just go over a few areas where I think that you could give the listeners a better idea of what what they should be aware of? Okay. So where divorce is involved, there's quite a lot of family wealth gets gets taken up in this, doesn't it? Because you have to produce statements on either side detailing exactly what assets each side has. Yes, when it comes to the financial disclosure aspect where we advise all clients to obtain financial disclosure before obtaining a an agreement or a court settlement, it's very important. And on that form, it's called the Form E, you disclose all of your income, your assets, your liabilities, so put down from if you own any property to even if you have one pound in a bank account or if that a bank account is overdrawn any cash assets any anything worth over 500 pounds any business interest pension values anything you can think of goes on that form and has to be disclosed and that's a legal requirement not always we advise our clients to always obtain financial disclosure if you want to get full proper legal advice on it some people of course choose to do it their own way and enter their agreements and throw caution <laughs> to the wind um, which I would never advise to go down that route but if somebody chooses to do that it is at their own risk so if I'm thinking of divorcing my wife and if you're listening dear that isn't the case <laughs> <laughs> but I've got this sort of hundred thousand pounds stashed away in a little private offshore account you would strongly recommend that I declare that as part of our divorce proceedings? Most definitely. If if that asset was not disclosed, and if it came to light that it was not disclosed, even after an order was made, your wife could, in fact, make another application to the court because you lied to the court. And that puts me in a pretty bad light, I guess. I'm straight away on the back foot there, yes. aren't I? Yes, very bad financial behaviour. The court would not look lightly on you. Excellent. Well, as I said earlier, if you're listening, dear, that isn't the case. It's more than a slap on the hand. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Very much so when I get in tonight. There seems to be quite a lot of divorce um, in the sort of older brackets, and that's where we're talking about the baby boomers, which is very much involved Mm. in the generation that we're talking about here who are holding the wealth and looking to pass that on. And is that your experience? Are you seeing that there is more divorce in the, let's say, the over 60s? I do find that's the case, especially now as everybody's living longer, everybody's healthier. 
there's, there's a lot more life ahead after 60. Um, and once the children have grown up and they, the parents see that they've settled, many people are re-evaluating their lives and deciding to move on at that point. Yeah, and there's probably not quite so much of the uh, we're married for life type of approach now, is there? No. <laughs> yeah, not living into your 90s now. Where you've got these um, serial divorcees, I mean, we, we have clients that have been married two or three times before, and they have children from these previous marriages as well as in some cases children from outside the marriages mm. but this must make be an absolute nightmare when you're trying to deal with that isn't that Reshma? Yes because if it depends on the, the age of the children and whether they're in education or financially independent but if you're looking at somebody in his say in his mid-60s and he has a newborn child there is that aspect to be taken into account and if even if he has children from other marriages depending on their age if he's got children who are now grown up independent settled they wouldn't be brought into the calculation but it would all depend on the number of children that person has and their ages i see yeah we started off the series talking to steve and we used him as somebody who we felt typified his generation expecting to receive family wealth from his parents and possibly his wife's parents mm. now if either side have been serial divorcees as it were their chances of getting or receiving the family wealth are seriously diminished aren't they yes it is and there's it's not just about the divorce aspect the family wealth people are are having less money to pass down because they are living longer when they have to worry about looking after themselves in their old age. Yeah, we find that quite a bit as we're dealing with people who do need long-term care. A lot yeah. of this sort of thing comes out at that point. Mm. All right. And that's another aspect in the divorce proceedings that we have to take into account. Well, making sure there is enough provision for 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 care later on? For the person themselves. Oh. If, if that person is unwell and you know if, for example, they'll be moving to a care home. It is if somebody's living longer and then divorcing in their late, later life, um, later years, I'm trying to think of the correct word, <laughs> to be politically correct, um, then then that is something I would say to them they do, do need to think of. It's not just about passing wealth down to their children. They have to look after themselves as well in the divorce proceedings. Just as I would if a 40-year-old woman came in and she didn't have a, any pension, we'd be advising them to consider the pensions uh, upon divorce and if somebody came who was older who was receiving money that's where you would okay. look into them but their own care as well because if they are living until they're 80 they've still got another 25 years to think about yes indeed and of course so that there's less money to pass down yeah so there's two aspects that you've just brought up Reshma. Mm. The, the first of all is the long-term care or possibility of long-term care so when you're looking at settlements you're taking that into account when we're talking about the 60 plus divorcees yes yes it's something they have to consider okay and the court are quite happy to accept that as part of the settlement process well it's all up it's all in negotiation but they have to think oh, okay. about themselves as well it's not just worrying about what their children would get what if they're living until they're 85 90 and they don't have enough money for themselves to live on yeah that makes... and they can't go back to work so so that's just as an important aspect that's as are the other things. Yeah, that's a very important aspect. I haven't thought about that uh, before. Okay, so we've just mentioned long-term care. You mentioned now about retirement as well. So mm. when you're looking for settlements for some of your clients, you, in, in some cases, and I don't wish to be, <laughs> be patronising here, but quite often 
where you're representing the wife side of things, she's been relying on her husband's or anticipating to have her husband's uh, retirement income through his pension. Mm -hmm. So your advice would be that they need to make sure there is enough provision for them for their ultimate retirement. Yes, and that's where they need to go and speak to a financial advisor as well, or they come to you. Um, it's it's not that that they say sometimes I don't want the pension I'll I'll take the house now which is great now but then what do you do when it's time for their retirement Yeah yeah I can see that So we we have to look at the whole picture Okay all right um, we did a little article Nick and myself in a previous what caught our eye feature in the podcast about the no blame divorce the introduction of no blame divorce now that's yes we that's only just been um, sort of agreed hasn't it yes hopefully it'll be coming into law next autumn 2021 okay you say hopeful is that because yeah. you think there's going to be a proliferation <laughs> in divorces no it's just it's the process so you can't rely on anything at the moment it, it's the aim is for, for autumn 2021 but you never know what can happen how do you see that affecting the work you do with clients in divorce situations i think it's great it's it's great it's something i'm i'm part of resolution um it's an organization that provides a correct way of acting for divorce clients um, and it's a, the code of conduct that we have to follow as well and Resolution have been fighting for the no-fault no divorce for a long time and I do think it'll be very beneficial to get rid of animosity between the parties. Um, there can be more room for negotiation, more room to, to make things easier for them to move forward as well. I don't. I don't think there'll be a drop in the number of cases. If anything, you could see more people right. divorcing for, for a while because it, it stops people having having to wait and it stops assigning blame it takes two yeah i can see that okay so you mentioned resolution i'm aware of them as an organization but they're very much about settlements through negotiation and agreement rather than actually slugging yes. it out in the in, yes. in the court that the, even the courts follow that follow that rule as well they always want people to try and negotiate out of court court is a last resort it's very expensive and very time consuming, very stressful. And it is a last resort if, yes. you, if you cannot come to an agreement out of court. Yes, I can imagine it will be very mm. stressful for the people involved, well, particularly if you're representing the, the wife aspect of that. Yeah. All right. Well, what we'll do is we'll put a link to the resolution on our Please do. Mm. landing page and we'll pick up on that. Okay, that's fantastic. All right. So finally, Reshma, can I ask you in what circumstances you feel that you working with a financial planner is the advantage in a collaborative fashion to the advantage of the clients? I personally think it's important to have one on board for nearly all of my financial cases. Um, I will always advise my clients to speak to an uh, independent financial advisor to, to obtain advice that I, I cannot give. I'm a specialist in divorce, not in finances, and it's always good to have a specialist in your corner. Fantastic. Reshma, thank you very much indeed for your time. Very pleased with that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And now it's time for What Caught Our Eye This Week. Pete, you want to make some comments here? Yeah, thanks, Nicola. As regular listeners will know, I'm a member of the Society of Later Life Advisors, commonly known as SOLA, and we get a lot of good information from them that we like to pass on when we're able to. I want to pick up on some key points from their last month's webinar looking at pensions oh yeah how long was the webinar well it was over an hour you know you're running a serious risk of a big fine here for being boring okay i will stick to just the key points and then provide a checklist that listeners can refer to on the landing page that might avoid a fine but i will be listening for any opportunity well that's encouraging the key areas from my webinar notes are 
increase in the normal retirement age, changes to public sector pensions, Department of Works and Pensions, or the DWP, policy statement on regulating access to pensions, inheritance tax and pensions, an update on the Consumer Price Index, and the Financial Conducts Authority pension income data. Nicola, please interrupt me to qualify any points for our listeners. Oh, don't worry, I will. Even if it's just to save our listeners from hearing you drone on. Yeah, okay. Let's start with the minimum retirement age. In a recent parliamentary reply, it was confirmed that the minimum pension age will rise from 55 to 57 in 2028, and that will be 10 years before the state retirement pension age of 67. And in 2046, the state pension will rise to 68, so the earliest retirement age will then be 58. So the earliest possible retirement age will be 10 years before the state pension age going forward. Very interesting, but that's so far away. As you know, we work with clients over the longer period and retirement planning is often central to this. So a two year increase in the current minimum pension age is very significant. So let's now look at the public sector pensions. In 2008, significant changes to public sector pensions designed to save over 400 billion in public spending over the next 50 years, moving from a final salary arrangement to a career average revalued earnings, often referred to under the mnemonic care. This was likely to affect those within 10 years of retirement, and it also impacted on the way the tax-free cash from the pension was calculated. And these were introduced in a transitionary period where benefits were protected, allowing members time to compare the benefits under the earlier and the replacement schemes. In 2015, there were two landmark court cases based on age discrimination. In 2018, the Court of Appeal ruled that it was unlawful age discrimination and it would affect around 3 million workers. Who are these 3 million public sector workers then? Well, they're civil servants, the NHS, local government, teachers, police and armed forces. So key employees then. So what's the outcome? In July 2020, the Treasury announced it would extend the consultation period of protection from the 1st of April 2015 up to the 31st of March 2022. This is, this is also available to those who had left the scheme. In any event, all benefits in the final salary pension scheme will come to an end on the 31st of March 2022. Oh, very interesting. But what does that mean to our listeners? They need to make a dying note that in 2022, they should automatically receive information from the government, allowing them to decide whether to use the pre-2008 final salary pension scheme or the replacement care scheme during this protection period. Just remind us again, what is the care scheme? Do pay attention. It stands for the (laughs) career average revalued earnings and could have a significant influence on their retirement funding. The government will be offering two options on making this decision and we have included information that's on the landing page. Are we able to offer our listeners advice in this area? Well, to be brutally frank, and from what I understand about these two options, it makes it impossible to give clients good advice without using a crystal ball. Why isn't it obvious? Well, it isn't obvious, is it? No, it's really down to individual circumstances because um, sometimes they're going to actually be better on the care scheme than they would on the final salary scheme. And it's impossible to give generic advice based on that because we don't know. They have access to the information. We struggle to get 
information from some of these sources. So we suggest that the members undertake their own research and refer to their unions. We're some way off the end of the consultation period, so listeners should continue to monitor informed comments during this period. We have already seen senior members of the NHS suffering income tax charges, and this adds another dimension to the mix. I know I'm going to regret this, but why don't you tell us about the DWP policy? Remembering our fines for being boring. Okay. Yes, in October this year, the DWP issued guidance on pension advice, effectively trying to get the pensions freedom genie back into its lamp. When this was first announced in 2015, we had a lot of inquiries about taking money out of pensions, including final salary style pensions. And in most cases, it was inappropriate and we declined to provide advice. So now the DWP is increasing the need for advice using the PensionWise service. In a lot of cases, this service works well, albeit in a very small percentage of pension members who show interest. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. What? That whole sentence that you just read out. They're basically now saying to the trustees and the pension providers, the member must take advice before they take cash out of their pensions and they're directing them to the PensionWise service. Right. In a lot of cases, this service works well, although there is a very small percentage of members who show interest in using it. Going forward, all of the pension providers and trustees will direct their members to this pension wise service when they're looking to take cash out of their pensions. When you're talking about your genie, the fact is you've had these freedoms, but now we've got to make sure that people actually understand the consequences. Yeah, good point. Okay. So, is this a universal panacea for all then? Well, not really. Research indicates that those intended to take cash from their pensions simply see this as an obstacle to be overcome. Stripping the cash out of a pension is not the motivation for our usual clients who see their pensions as an integral part of their longer term financial planning rather than just a cash cow. But for those wanting to take cash from those pensions, they can expect to be asked if they have taken advice. But the, the big point is here that just because they've taken advice doesn't necessarily mean that they have to follow it, which obviously could be problematic in the longer terms. Added to that, we can expect to see more regulation as the state pension age is increased. Okay, we now move on to inheritance tax and pensions. This year saw a landmark case generally referred to as the Staveley case, where in 2006, Mrs Staveley transferred a pension knowing that she had a terminal illness. Please spare us the details and just tell our listeners how this case is likely to affect them. Okay, well, the circumstances of the case are a little unusual and Mrs Staveley died later in 2006, but essentially HMRC were claiming that the transfer was designed to avoid paying inheritance tax as the pre-transferred pension was subject to tax, but the post-transferred one wasn't. And this has been going on since 2006? 14 years? Yes, in this case it has gone through three levels of judiciary ending up in the Supreme Court and they decided that HMRC were wrong to pursue the inheritance tax claim but it was decided on a technicality and interpretation of the 1984 Inheritance Tax Act. We know from previous contentious cases where HMRC have lost in court that they will change the law so we feel that there might be wider implications arising from this case and we continue to monitor the situation and bring our listeners news on this. We have an episode later in the series talking to a technical manager of a leading pension provider looking at how pensions can be used 
in the transfer of family wealth, and at this point we do not believe that the Stavely case distracts from the contents of this episode. Okay, Pete, move on to your CPI heading. Yeah, what CPI are here, you ask? Well, it stands for the Consumer Price Index, and this is used when calculating benefits in pensions along with other thresholds. The CPI in in September 2020 was 0.5% and used to determine the increase in the state pension, the personal tax allowance, the pension's lifetime allowance and the inheritance tax threshold called the nil rate band. Okay, let's look at the effects on the state pension and inheritance tax. The state pension currently enjoys the triple lock on increases. That means it will increase by the greater of CPI, as we said, this is 0.5%, or the increase in the average earnings index. This year, that's minus 1%, or a minimum of 2.5%. You don't need to be Professor Brian Cox to see that 2.5% is the greater value, and the basic state pension will be £179.60 per week from April 2021. Given this current triple lock for state pensions, we will always make sure the client's state pension is fully subscribed when looking at funding retirement. Unfortunately, the Limited Price Index, or the LPI, used to increase a lot of final salary pensions, will reduce from last year's 1.7 to 0.5% in 2020. Regarding the increase in the inheritance tax threshold or nil rate band, this has been frozen for the last 10 years, but is due to increase by CPI from April 2021. And finally, as promised, we look at the FCA data. That's the Financial Conduct Authority for those who don't know. I won't go into details here. Thank goodness. What the FCA stats show is that it is the smaller pension funds that are used to release the most cash irrespective of or not fully understanding the tax consequences. At this point in our podcast, we would include case notes. But as Pete has taken so long to cover his feature on what caught our eye this week, I'm suggesting that we conclude this episode here with our usual checklist. Okay, so in this episode, we heard Reshma talking about how family wealth can be redirected as part of divorces. She made the point that when completing the financial disclosure form E, it is important to ensure that everything, that's everything, is declared. It's not clever missing out assets that later come to light as this will be considered tantamount to a breach of court with severe consequences. As Reshma said, you can conduct your own divorce, but this is certainly not to be encouraged. Divorce is emotionally demanding enough without adding this strain. A good divorce lawyer like Rashma will take away this strain for you. We heard Rashma say that as life expectancy increases, we are seeing more divorces and remarriages in later life, leading to multi-layered families. So good legal and financial planning is increasingly more important. We also heard that divorce in later life brings into play the need to reserve for possible long-term care costs. Remember, as solemn members, we are highly experienced in this area. Yeah, we did an episode on that a little earlier. Pensions involved in divorce is a vital area of advice. After property, pensions are probably the most valuable asset and plays an important part in clients' lives in the years following the divorce. Again, good financial planning is essential. Reshma mentioned that she is a member of Resolution and that has a clear code of conduct their members must follow. We have provided information about Resolution and it's on our landing page. So now I get a chance to list my key points from the solo webinar. No! You've already had your fair share of this podcast and don't think our listeners will want to hear you summarising a summary. So let me close by thanking you for listening. 
Look at the information on our landing page and a reminder to watch out for the episode coming later on pensions and estate planning when we're talking to the technical manager of one of the company's leading pension providers. And in our next podcast, we'll be talking to Tammy Wood at Debenhams Ottaway on powers of attorney and hope you'll be able to join us then. Thank you.